You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323 by Rudolf Steiner, 18 lectures entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 16, given on January 16, 1921. What we're doing, as you'll have seen, is bringing together the diverse elements by means of which we will eventually be able to determine the forms of movement of the heavenly bodies. And in addition to the forms of movement, what may perhaps be described as their mutual positions. We're going to be able to gain a concrete idea of our system of heavenly bodies only when we're able to determine first the curves. Forms of movement are called curves, that is the geometrical figures, and then the centers of observation. These are the tasks that an approach such as the one we have introduced must face. I have deliberately presented this new approach in the way that I did for some specific reasons. The greatest errors that are made in science arise when scientists attempt to synthesize before actually establishing the preconditions for such a synthesis. Scientists are inclined to theorize to gain conclusive views. It's as though they don't want to wait until the conditions for theorizing have been fulfilled. The practice of science would benefit tremendously if scientists would cultivate the feeling that they simply cannot begin to answer certain questions until the conditions for the answer have really been established. I know that many people, present company accepted, of course, would be happier if someone presented them with ready-made, finished curves describing planetary orbits or other kinds of motion, because then they would have something that answers their question. How are this and that related in terms of our pre-existing store of concepts? But if the nature of the questions is such that they cannot be answered in terms of ready-made concepts, then all our attempts to theorize will be null and void. One's question may be put to rest, but the satisfaction is illusionary. That's why I deliberately framed the pedagogy underlying these lectures in the way I did. The results we have gained so far have shown that we need to make careful distinctions if we wish to discover which curve forms actually correspond to the celestial movements. We have to distinguish, for instance, between the apparent movements of Venus, which forms its loop in conjunction, and Mars, which forms its loop in opposition. We came to this conclusion when trying to perceive how diverse the curves are that arise within the human constitution by virtue of the forces that come into play in giving human nature its distinctive gestalt we ascertained quite different curves at work in shaping the organs of the head versus those forming the metabolic system and the limbs. 
we found that these two types of form are nevertheless related, and that we have to look for the transition from one to the other, not in rigid Euclidean space, but rather outside of space altogether. Now our task here is to find an initial transition from that which we find within our own human organism to that which is outside in cosmic space. As long as our concept of space remains rigid, the universe can only seem to be Euclidean. As to this question, we gain an answer only by persevering with the same method we have so far developed. Namely, we have to seek the real connection between what unfolds within ourselves as human beings and the movements of the celestial bodies outside us in the universe. Then we're bound to put this fundamental epistemological question, what is the relationship between movements that can legitimately be considered relative and those that certainly cannot? We know that among the forces shaping the human organism we have two kinds those that work radially, and those we have to conceive as working spherically. See figure 1. The question now is, with regard to outer movements, how does that which unfolds spherically present itself to our human cognition? And how do we apprehend what unfolds radially? Today, science has already begun to distinguish, even experimentally, between these two different kinds of motion, even within the space of the universe. The movements of a heavenly body upon the sphere can, of course, be traced visually. Spectral analysis, however, also enables us to detect movements of a radial kind, movements of celestial bodies toward or away from us along the line of sight. As you probably know, Research into this problem has led to the interesting discovery of double stars that move around each other, motions that could be established only by applying to the problem I have been describing the principle of the Doppler shift. The question now is whether our way of proceeding, which integrates humanity into the whole of the cosmos, might give us a way of deciding somehow whether, let me put this cautiously, a motion can be merely apparent, or rather, must be real. Is there anything to indicate that a given movement must be a real one? As I already mentioned to you, we need to distinguish between motions that might well be merely relative on the one hand, and on the other hand movements such as rotations, shears, and deformations, motions that cannot be interpreted as relative in any sense. We need to look for a criterion for determining whether a motion is real. The only way to arrive at such a criterion for real movement is to take into account the relationships within what's moved. We can't possibly limit ourselves to a mere relating of external loci. A trite example I have often given is of two men whom I see standing side by side at 9 a.m. and again at 3 p.m. The only difference is that after I went away and ceased observing the situation, one of them stayed there, while the other went on an errand lasting six hours. At 3 p.m. I see them side by side again. 
If I only observe their spatial locations at 3 p.m., I will never understand the actual state of affairs. Merely observing where they are outwardly in space will never tell me the true facts. Only by seeing that one is more tired than the other, that is, by taking account of an inner process, can I learn anything about the motion that has taken place. That's the point. Before we can characterize a motion as absolute, we have to enter into and experience inwardly what the thing that was moved underwent. And we need something else besides, which I will take up tomorrow. But today let's begin to approach the problem at least. We need to look at the matter from quite another angle. In fact, you see, if we study the formation of the human organism today, then we immediately encounter a fundamental limitation. The most we can hope to achieve is a kind of visual connection with that which is outside us in cosmic space. All this just goes to show that we humans have achieved a high degree of independence from the motions of cosmic space. In our immediate experience, we have emancipated ourselves, as it were, from the phenomena of the universe. Therefore, we can only refer back to an earlier time in which humans engage even less of their inner life in their experiences than they do later in normal consciousness, in their postnatal life on earth. We can only refer back to the period of embryonic development, where the process of formation actually does unfold in harmony with the forces of the cosmos. What remains of this within the human constitution afterward is only, as it were, something that was implanted during embryonic development and then persists. We can't say it's inherited, in quotes, in the usual sense of that word. For in fact nothing is inherited, but we have to think of a similar process whereby certain entities persist as holdovers from an earlier period of development. Now we need to look for an answer to the question, Is there still anything in the ordinary life we lead after our birth, after full consciousness has been attained? Is there still any hint at all of our connection with the cosmic forces? Let's consider the human alternation of waking and sleeping. Even the most highly educated people today still have to let this alternation happen. In order for us to remain healthy, the temporal sequence of this alternation needs to be thoroughly consonant with the natural alternation of day and night. But even so, modern humans have liberated themselves from nature in this regard. In urban life, we no longer let it coincide with nature. Yet the connection is still there among farmers living in the countryside whose souls are different from urbanites for this very reason. They sleep at night and wake by day. When days are longer and nights shorter, they sleep less. When nights are longer, they sleep longer. But ultimately such considerations remain vague. We can't theorize on this basis. We have to pose a different question if we want to see the eruption of relations that are cosmic into human subjective relations. In that way we'll discover something within our human interiority that can point us in the direction of absolute movement within the universe. Now, I would like to draw your attention to something you can easily observe 
if you are prepared to extend your observation to wider fields. Namely, however easily we might emancipate ourselves from the universe in the alternation of sleeping and waking as regards temporal succession, we can't emancipate ourselves with impunity as regards spatial position. Even the sophisticates among us who turn night into day and day into night, and indeed there are such folks among us, even they must choose to sleep in a position that is not the upright posture of waking life. They have to bring the axis of their spines into the same orientation as the animals, as it were. One might investigate a thing like this in greater detail. For instance, it's a physiological fact that there are people suffering certain illnesses who can't sleep properly when horizontal, but have to sit as upright as possible. Precisely these deviations from the normal association of sleep with the horizontal posture will help to indicate the underlying law. A careful study of these exceptions, due as they are to more or less palpable diseases, as in the case of asthmatic subjects, for example, will indicate very clearly what kind of lawfulness prevails within this domain. Taking the facts together, you really can put it in this way. In order to go to sleep, humans need to adopt a position whereby their lives become animal-like during sleep. You'll find further confirmation of this point in a careful study of those animals whose spinal axis is not exactly parallel to the Earth's surface. Here again I can only give you certain basic guidelines. The specifics should become a matter for scientific research because the facts have not been investigated in this manner or not exhaustively. Some people have offered hints, but they haven't studied the matter thoroughly. The kind of research that would be necessary for science to progress along these lines simply hasn't been undertaken. So that is one fact. And now there is another. You know that what's trivially called fatigue represents a highly complex sequence of events. It can arise when we move voluntarily. When we move voluntarily, we move our center of gravity in a direction parallel the surface of the earth. In a sense, we move about a surface parallel to the earth's surface. The process that accompanies our outward and deliberate movements unfolds along such a surface. Now, here again in this process, we can discover something that belongs together. On the one hand, we have our movement and mobility parallel to the surface of the earth, and our fatigue becoming tired. Now we go further in our line of thought. This movement parallel to the surface of the earth, which finds its symptomatic expression in fatigue, involves a metabolic process and expenditure of metabolism. Therefore, underlying the horizontal movement, we find something that we are entirely justified in seeing as an inner process of the human organism. Now, the first thing we see is that human beings are so constituted that they can't forego, they really can't forego such movement, including, of course, all the concomitant phenomena, the metabolic expenditure of substance, and so on. If you deliver the mail, your job sees to it that you move about horizontally. If you aren't a mail carrier, you take a walk. Hence the differing values placed on the kind of human mobility that flows into the economy, 
and the kind of mobility that remains outside the economy, as in games, sports and the like. Physiological and economic aspects meet there in reality. You might remember that I've often mentioned this connection in my critique of the economic concept of labor. It's simply impossible to do economics without seeking this connection between pure social science and physiology. For us, however, at the present moment, the important thing is to observe this parallelism between movement along a horizontal surface and a certain kind of metabolic process. Now, the same metabolic process can also be sought elsewhere. We can seek it in the alternation of sleeping and waking. But in the case of deliberate movements, we might say that the process is executed in such a way that quite apart from what's happening inside our souls, the metabolic conversion is at the same time an external process. If I may put it so, something is happening there in which the fact that the human body is superficially limited by surfaces is not exclusively determinative. Substances are converted but in such a way that this transformation of substance takes place in the absolute, as it were, within the relatively absolute, of course, in such a way that you can't say it has meaning only for the interior of the human organism. That we get tired is, as I said, a symptomatic concomitant of movement and of the metabolic conversion that movement involves. Yet we also get tired if we have only lived out the day while doing nothing. Therefore, the same entities which are at work when we move about voluntarily are also at work in us, in our daily life, simply by virtue of our internal constitution. The metabolic conversion must also be taking place when we just get tired, without our bringing it about by any deliberate action. We put ourselves into the horizontal posture so as to bring about the same metabolic process that takes place when we aren't acting voluntarily. That takes place simply with the lapse of time, if I may put it that way. We put ourselves into the horizontal posture during sleep, so that in this horizontal position our body may be able to carry out what it also carries out when we're moving voluntarily in waking life. You see from this that the horizontal position as such is of great significance. It's not a matter of indifference whether or not we get into that position. In order to let our inner organism carry out a certain process without our deliberate involvement, we have to bring ourselves into the horizontal position. In other words, during sleep we bring ourselves into a position in which something happens within our organism that otherwise happens when we move voluntarily. Hence a movement must be going on within our body that we don't bring about voluntarily. A movement that we don't bring about voluntarily must be of significance for our body. As soon as you begin to observe the facts and set them forth in the right order, you'll arrive at the following results. For lack of time, I'm going to have to leave out the intermediate steps. Human movement, as we said just now, involves an absolute metabolic process or conversion of substance, so that what goes on in our metabolism then has, so to speak, real chemical or physical significance, for which the limits of our skin 
are in some sense non-existent, so that the human being in this process belongs to the whole cosmos. The very same metabolic conversion of substances is brought about in sleep, but now in such a way that its significance remains inside the human body. The conversion of substances that takes place in our voluntary movement takes place also in our sleep. But the result of it is then carried from one part of our organism to another. During sleep we're supplying our own head. Then we're carrying out, or rather letting the inside of our body carry out for us, a metabolic process of transformation for which the human skin has meaning as a covering. The transformation takes place in such a way that the final process to which it leads has meaning for the inner life of the human organism. Thus we can truly say, we move of our own accord and a metabolic conversion of substance takes place. We allow the cosmos to move us and a metabolic conversion of substance takes place. But the latter process goes on in such a way that the outcome of it which in the former metabolic process takes its course, so to speak, in the external world, turns inward to make itself felt within the human head as such. It simply turns back and doesn't go flowing outward and away. Yet in order for it to turn back, indeed for it to be there at all, we have to bring ourselves into the horizontal posture. Therefore we need to study the connection between those processes in the human body that take place when we move voluntarily and those that take place when we're sleeping. And from the very fact that we're obliged to do this at a certain stage of our present studies, you may divine how much is implied when in the general anthroposophical lectures I emphasize, as indeed I must do time and again, that our life of will, bound as it is to our metabolism, is to our life of ideation even as sleeping is to waking. With regard to the unfolding of our will, as I have said again and again, we're continuously asleep. Here, now, you have the exact determination of it. Moving voluntarily along a horizontal surface, we do the same thing we do in sleep, namely we sleep via our will. Sleeping and voluntary movement are thus related. When we're sleeping in the horizontal posture, only the outcome is different, namely what's scattered out into the external world when we're moving voluntarily is taken up and elaborated by the organs of the head. We have then these two processes that need to be sharply distinguished from each other, the scattering of the metabolic process in the case of voluntary movement and the internal elaboration of the metabolic conversion by all that happens in our head when we're sleeping. And if we now relate this to the animal kingdom, we can begin to understand how very significant it is that the animal spends its whole life in the horizontal posture. This turning round of the metabolism to provide for the head must be quite different in the animal. And voluntary movement must also be quite different in the animal from what it is in humans. This is the kind of thing that is so much neglected in contemporary science. It speaks only of what presents itself externally, 
failing to see that the same external process might stand for something different in the one creature and in the other. For example, quite apart now from any religious implication, humans die and the animals die. It doesn't follow that this is psychologically the same in either case. A scientist who takes it to be the same and bases his research on this assumption is like a man who would pick up a razor and declare, this is a kind of knife, therefore its function must be the same as any other knife's, so I will use it to cut my dumplings. When the example is so trivial, you might be tempted to answer, nobody would be that silly. But if one isn't careful, this kind of thing can happen even in the most advanced researches. Now this points to the following. In our voluntary movements, we find just the same process that expresses itself in curves that run parallel to the surface of the earth. Thus, we are compelled to make curves that proceed in this direction. What have we taken as fundamental now in this whole line of thought? The basis we have established is an inner process, something that unfolds within human beings, something that's a given in sleep. But on the other side is something that we ourselves perform, and because we ourselves perform it, we have the possibility of determining the other. Thus it's possible for us to view what's done to our constitution from out of the cosmos during sleep as the definindum, the thing that we are meant to learn, and to view the other of which we know its spatial relationships because we perform them outwardly as the genus of the definines. This is the kind of thing toward which we should strive in any kind of a real science. Not to define phenomena in terms of abstract concepts, but rather to define phenomena in terms of phenomena. Of course, it presupposes that we really understand the phenomena in question, for only then can we define them in terms of each other. That is what characterizes anthroposophical spiritual science generally. It seeks to attain a true phenomenology, to explain phenomena in terms of phenomena, instead of making abstract concepts to explain them. Nor does it want a mere blunt description of phenomena, leaving them just as they are in the chance distributions of empirical fact and circumstance, because in that state they can stand next to each other forever without explaining each other in any way. Allow me, please, to digress a moment at this point, to indicate the potential scope of this, in quotes, phenomenological striving. The empirical basis for this new way of thinking is already in place. Indeed, there is, if anything, a superabundance of such material. What we need is not empirical data, but rather new ways of synthesizing that material. In other words, a way of really explaining one phenomenon by way of another. We have to understand the phenomena before we can explain them in terms of each other. But we first have to develop the will to proceed in the way we have been doing here. We first have to develop the intention to really penetrate a phenomenon. It's just this intention that's so often neglected. Hence the main concern of our research institute will not be to go on experimenting in accordance with the old ways and methods which really have produced 
more than enough empirical data, not for technical applications, but rather for the creation of real syntheses. There is no call for us to go on experimenting in the old ways. As I said in the lectures on warmth last winter, what we want to do is to establish new experimental protocols. We need not only the kind of instruments that one buys from the optical instrument maker, we also have to construct our own instruments so that we can establish new experimental protocols and order the phenomena in such a way that one phenomenon can be explained by the other. We really need to build from the ground up. If we do that, we'll find an abundance of material that can offer an illuminating perspective. With the existing instruments, our contemporaries can do all that's necessary. They have acquired admirable skill at experimenting with them in their one-sided way. What we need are new experimental protocols. That's where we should focus our attention. Because with the old protocols, we'll never get beyond certain questions. And on the other hand, it also won't do for us merely to take our start from the old results and then indulge in blind speculation. Again and again, we need fresh experimental data to bring us back to the facts when we have strayed too far from them. We must always be able to find a way when we have reached a certain point in our experimental researches, not just to go on theorizing, but rather to move immediately from the data to an observation that will then become an explanatory observation. There's no other way to transcend limits that may seem absolute but are actually only the temporary limitations of a specific paradigm. Now let me direct your attention to one such limit, which, though not felt to be insurmountable by our contemporaries, will in fact be surmounted only when new experimental protocols have been established. I mean the question of the constitution of the sun. Careful and conscientious observations have of course been made using all the scientific methods currently available. And the conclusion that has been reached is that there's something different in the middle of the sun, but nobody is clear just what that might be. People simply speak of a solar nucleus, but nobody can say anything about it because our scientific methods don't extend that far. No blame or criticism is implied by this. Everyone admits it. Then they suppose the sun's nucleus to be surrounded by the so-called photosphere, the atmosphere, the chromosphere, and the corona. From the photosphere onward, they begin to have definite ideas about it. Thus they're able to form some idea about the atmosphere, the chromosphere. Suppose, for instance, that they are trying to imagine how sunspots arise. Incidentally, this remarkable phenomenon is not entirely random. It shows a certain rhythm with maxima and minima in periods of about 11 years. If you examine these phenomena of the sunspots, you'll find they have to be related in some way to processes that take place outside the solar nucleus. In trying to imagine what these processes are like, our scientists are apt to speak of explosions or other conditions of that kind. The point is that when proceeding in this way, 
They always take their start from premises derived from the earthly realm. And if you haven't first made an effort to refine and expand your range of concepts in the way we have done by conceiving curves that exit space, if you haven't cultivated your inner life by doing something like that, well, then I would say that nothing else is possible. Then there's nothing you can do except try to explain observational data relating to a body outside the earthly realm in the way that earthly conditions represent it. Indeed, what could be more obvious in the eyes of the reigning paradigm? They simply conceive the processes in the life of the sun as analogous to those in earthly life, with a few modifications. But in trying this, they soon encounter almost insuperable obstacles. The physical constitution of the sun can never really be understood with the ideas we derive from earthly life. Of course, we need to begin with the results of simple observation, which are indeed eloquent up to a point. Then, however, we have to try to theorize them with concepts that are adequate to their real nature. And in this effort, we'll have to become a bit acquainted with a principle that I'd like to characterize as follows. It's true, is it not, that when we try to clarify some outer constellation of facts in the light of a geometric axiom, the tendency is to persuade ourselves that this geometrical construct clicks, that the outer reality really is like that. We feel connected with outer reality when we find there what we first constructed. But of course, we shouldn't get carried away by this inner delight in seeing it fall into place, because this happens even to theorists who are all over the place. They're always finding that the ideas they first developed in their mind are in excellent agreement with external reality. And yet there's some validity to these things. What we need to do is simply try to imagine a process that unfolds within earthly life in the following way. We need to imagine its course by following the direction it takes from a midpoint outward, that is, in the radial direction. It may be a kind of outbreak, such as a volcanic eruption, for example, or the tendency to deformation in an earthquake or the like. We follow such a process upon earth in the direction of a line that goes outward from the given center. And now, in contrast to this, you can also imagine the inside of the sun, as we are wont to call it, to be of such a nature that its phenomena aren't thrust outward from the center, but on the contrary, take their course from the corona inward via the chromosphere, atmosphere, and photosphere. Not from within outward, therefore, but from without inward. Imagine that if this, see figure 2, is the photosphere, this the atmosphere, this the chromosphere, and this the corona, that the processes go inward, and, so to speak, gradually lose themselves toward the central point to which they tend. Just as phenomena that issue from the earth lose themselves outward in expanding spheres, eventually becoming an infinite plane. In this way, you'll gain a mental picture that will enable you to synthesize the empirical data in a certain sense. 
Speaking more concretely, you would have to say that if causes on the earth are such as to bring about the upward eruption of an active crater, for example, the cause on the sun will be such that if there is anything analogous to such an eruption, it will happen from without inward. The whole nature of the phenomenon holds it together in an entirely different way. While on the earth it tends apart, dispersing far and wide, here it strives toward the center. You see, what would be needed in such a case would be, first of all, to get to the bottom of the phenomena, to understand them, and then to allow them to explain each other. And we'll make real progress only if we enter into the qualitative aspect in this way, only if we're prepared in the widest sense of the word, to unfold a kind of qualitative mathematics. We'll say more about this tomorrow. Today I'd only like to add that there's a possibility, notably for pure mathematicians, to find the transition to a qualitative mathematics. Indeed, this possibility is there in a high degree, especially in our time. We only need to consider analytical geometry with all its manifold results, in relation to synthetic geometry, to the real inner experience of projective geometry. True, this will give us only the beginning, but it's a very, very good beginning. You'll be able to confirm this if you set out along this path, if, for example, you really enter into the thought and make it clear to yourself that a line doesn't have two infinitely distinct points, one in the one direction and another in the opposite direction, but rather only one, a fact of which there is no doubt. Then you'll find concepts that are more real in this field. And from this starting point, you'll find your way into a qualitative form of mathematics. This will enable you to conceive the polarities of nature as not merely antithetical, but also inwardly aligned. And yet at the same time, they're not aligned qualitatively. The phenomena of the anode and the cathode, for example, don't have the same inner direction. There's an inherent difference between them. And to discover what the difference is, we have to go this route. We mustn't allow ourselves to think of a real line as though it had two ends. We should be clear in our mind that a real line in its totality has to be conceived not with two ends, but with one. Simply by virtue of the real conditions, the other end goes on into a continuation which must lie somewhere. Please, don't underestimate the far-reaching consequences of these lines of thought, for they lead deep into many a riddle of nature. But if we approach those riddles without such preparation, we'll be able to grasp them only in such a way that our thinking will never penetrate the phenomena. The end of lecture 16.